This is an ABC podcast. Kate Umbers is an insect person, and we spoke to her a while back on Off Track all about the chameleon sky hoppers that live almost at the top of Mount Kosciuszko. My old mate, the raven, is sitting out on the balcony just trying to see if there's any tidbits. All puffed up. Oh, looks like you've got a bit of a dodgy foot, do you, Dal? No, you poor old thing. So why is she talking about corvids? Oh, they're great birds. It's just such a such a shame they're so bloody hard to work with because they're so smart. Um, not much good at all for working with when you're trying to trick them. <laughs> well, it turns out that when you think about insects, particularly their defence mechanisms... The experience of the predator is actually pretty key to the whole investigation. But ravens in the Australian Alps, well, they're too smart for Kate to even get near them to have a test. And also they all bloody look exactly the same too. (laughs) So the only way to tell individuals apart would be to to ban them. And to ban them, you need to catch them, handle them, and they don't like that. They remember who you are and they don't come near you again. So, yeah keep their mysteries. (laughs) G'day, it's Anne Jones and in this episode of Off Track, Dr Kate Umbers from the University of Western Sydney is going to be talking about mountain katydids. Now, katydids, they're sort of like a cricket and they normally do their best to never be seen. They're often green and leaf-like in appearance, but not these mountain guys, no, no, no. These ones are different. When you're looking for a mountain katydid, what you're looking for is habitat that is just below the tree line, so still in among the snow gums, where you've got large shrubs and you can spot them quite a way off. They are a very big, dark, black, round insect if they're a female big, long, leaf-like insect if it's a male. They're typically sitting up on the top of these shrubs, not particularly worried about being seen. And, you know, you can sort of spot them from a car. They're that sort of size of insect once you get your eye in. The females look a lot like some of the wombat poo you find around these areas, and the males look a lot like raven feathers or, you know, dark-coloured gum leaves. As you walk up to them, they don't move. They don't really care. (laughs) And you can quite easily pick one up and have a look at it. And the very first time you do that, you're in for quite a shock. Because they raise up their black wings and they've got bright red, blue and black stripes on the top of their abdomen. They've got a bright orange sort of collar around the back of their head and they exude little droplets of nasty tasting stuff. And sometimes they even wriggle their antennae like a wasp. So it's quite a surprise and a really spectacular display that they get up to. So they basically go from being Darth Vader to going to Mardi Gras (laughs) in a split second. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. Do you know what though? Like when I started my PhD, I was <laughs> I went into the mountains and I wanted to find something to work on. And I saw the these mountain Katie did right at the start of my PhD, and I thought, you know what? It's too easy. It's obviously an anti predator signal. I'm going to work on this turquoise thing that changes colour and no one has a clue why it doesn't. I mean, Skyhopper's pretty cool, but yeah. You know, fast forward 15 years, I'm like, wow, <laughs> that was really, really naive. And the reason is because when I saw the mountain Katie did and I saw it suddenly reveal its colours, I thought, whoa, that's, you know, that's amazing. But I didn't realise the gap in the literature where we know so much about these classic warning colours of ladybirds and so little about these organisms that suddenly reveal bright colours. I, I just was totally naive to the fact that the literature had basically never dealt with these organisms. Then it turns out that the defence mechanisms of the mountain Katie did just reveal surprise after surprise after surprise. But first, Insect Defence 101. Let's start really broad scale. Why do you need defence mechanisms? <laughs> um, otherwise you end up somebody's dinner. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and once you're dead, you can't survive or reproduce, so therefore you have no fitness and that's the end of your line. I mean, there's a lot of things that eat insects, right? So that predation pressure has driven some really unbelievable and spectacularly complex uh, defensive traits. So you sort of got warning signals, you know, that a lot of different taxa use and there's tons of examples in the insects. So those sort of classically bright colours with bad tasting chemicals associated with them. Then you've got things like flash displays, which are people probably know from walking through long grass with grasshoppers in them when the grasshoppers will suddenly fly away and click and you might flash brightly coloured hind wings or something as they're, as they're moving away. Then there's, you know, classic things like camouflage, which I guess the point of camouflage is really to avoid being seen or avoid being recognised as prey. And obviously we see that across all animals as well with insects providing some really, really spectacular examples of one kind of camouflage called masquerade, which is where you pretend to be something you're not rather than simply pretending not to be there. You know, a caterpillar that might look like the end of a dead branch or a caterpillar that might look like a snake. Caterpillars are masters of all kinds of masquerade. It gets pretty weird. <laughs> But, I mean, the key thing really with anti-predator defences is that it's the predators that are driving it. So we always have to think of anti-predator defences from the predator's point of view, what the predator experiences, what the predator learns. That's really what's driving the complexity, you know, why a lady beetle might be red instead of yellow and black. That's all down to what predators they have. So it's sort of cool because you can go, okay, well, if this animal has a red warning signal, then we know there's a whole pile of animals that can't see red. So we can immediately rule them out as being the predator that's driving that particular adaptation. So that's kind of fun um, when, you can, when you can kind of Sherlock a few things out. 
And there is another type of defensive display that's particularly important for the mountain Katie did. That transformation from drab ball to extravagantly coloured firecracker that Kate described just before. In the 70s, the phrase dramatic behaviour or dramatic reaction was coined. As far as we can tell, it is from the root that is shared with the name for the Greek god for terror, which is Deimos, which is the brother of Phobos, which is, of course, fear. The word was first used and described to mean I frighten. And so dramatic behaviour, dramatic displays are something that a prey does when a predator approaches it. And that behaviour affects the predator in a way that makes the predator pause or stop its attempt to attack the prey and should increase the likelihood of survival of the prey because of that. And it can take on tons of different forms. So it can be the sudden reveal of eye spots on butterfly wings. It could be a squeaky sound that a caterpillar makes when a bird tries to attack it. It could be suddenly being very, very colourful, whereas before the animal was, you know, um, grey and cryptic and matching its background or something like that. It can also just be actually changing the body shape through the behaviour to appear to be something it's not. So there's some examples of phasmids that curl their tail over to, in theory, look like a scorpion. But the overall thing is that it should pause the predator or stop the predator from continuing its attack. And so it's sort of like a a wall moment that just gives an instant for the invertebrate to get away. Well, that's a really interesting part of the kind of whole um, mess around trying to understand what these defences are because they have been classically described as something that prey do in order to buy themselves time to get away. But the more we look at these defences, the more we find that the prey don't actually escape. Mm. They stay there and display and they just hold their display. They hang out and keep showing their bright colours or whatever to the predator. Um, A lot of praying mantises will hold their pose for a really long time and some of the uh, the early experiments, one one particular early experiment showed a praying mantis that was put in a cage with a bird that that would eat it and put in the cage for six hours with this bird and it displayed for six hours, (laughs) which is pretty extraordinary. Those sorts of preconceptions about organisms using it as a way to startle their predator, make the predator pause and then get away seem to be actually much rarer than prey that do their display and stand there. Which brings us back to the mountain Katie did and their defence strategies. Here we go. First things first, you said that they excrete something. So is it vomit or wee? (laughs) Is that what they're doing? Um, Yes, and more. (laughs) So, well, almost all orthopterans, so grasshoppers, katydids, and and all of their mates, crickets, most of them will regurgitate their crop contents when you pick them up. So that's a really, really common strategy for, and not just orthopterans. So they definitely get this little bright green bubble in their mouth, which is just the food that they've been eating, gurgitated. And they do that quite often when they're attacked. 
but the main thing they do is they actually have a specific defensive chemical that they exude from the top of their abdomen. That's an innovation above and beyond the kind of normal gut contents expulsion that other <laughs> other health options might do. So what is that? We haven't done the histology of it, so we don't know exactly how the exudate is produced, but when they raise their wings to do their display, they little beads of liquid form on the abdomen surface and it's clear and it tastes very bitter to humans. Wait, how- <laughs> Kate, Kate Umbers, how do you know what it tastes like? <clears throat> My mentors in the field of predator-prey interactions recommended (laughs) that to really know, to get as close as you can to knowing what a predator experiences, you really need to sample it yourself. That was... That was the advice I was given as a young green scientist, not knowing any better, of course. I immediately did what my my mentors suggested. Um, Yeah, you know, you've got to kind of do it. I mean, it's probably really bad for you. Um, It's a defensive chemical, right? Um, So I don't know that I could recommend it to others. But, yeah, we did. We licked it and... (laughs) <laughs> and that's what it tastes like. So it has this kind of, it's actually interesting. It's got a kind of a cold, you know, something um, like some, like a metho or alcohol, that sort of stuff. It, when you have it on your skin, it feels cold. Yeah. It's sort of got that kind of property to it. It's obvious when it's on your tongue that something weird is on your tongue. The Mountain Caddy did also reveals startling colours at the same time as squeezing that droplet of yucky stuff. There are bands of blue and red and it's revealed suddenly like curtains being drawn back in an instant. Of course, Kate had initially dismissed the displays as pretty simple to understand. She thought it was just like a lady beetle saying it's poisonous by wearing a red back. But the Katie did is anything but simple. The more that I got my head into where all this colour signalling literature is and the visual signalling literature is and everything, and the more I started to realise, oh, man, actually, those Katie dids that are up there, I'm going to have to revisit them because they're actually super weird. Um, when I was a postdoc at ANU, there was a visiting professor from Finland, Johanna Mappis, who is a very big cheese in the world of anti-predator defences, and she also, you know, likes going to mountains and hiking and drinking wine on the weekends. So I invited her to a field trip to say, hi, you know, Yonna, would you like to come and see this really weird Katie did that lives in the mountains? It's got a cool signal. And she was, you know, yeah, great, let's go. And so off we went and, you know, like within minutes of seeing this animal, she said, right, we're doing an experiment this weekend. <laughs> like, we're going to squeeze it in. We were just supposed to be going away for the weekend, but we're going to start an experiment. We have to do something on this thing. So, you know, her perspective coming from 30, 40 years of working in anti-predator defences was able to immediately see how, how neat this creature was. So what did you put the Katie Dids through that weekend? Well, you know, we put them through their paces. <laughs> um, I think there was a single scientific paper written about the mountain Katie did before that fateful weekend away, and it was in 1975. 
And so, you know, you've got every question in front of you to answer <laughs> and you've got two days. <laughs> so what do you do? So the first thing we thought we'd do is think, okay, well, what triggers them to display? What kind of stimuli would get them to perform their display? And so we sort of just came up with a suite of different kinds of stimuli that were ranging from very little interaction with the katydid right through to kind of simulating a predation event. So we had looking at them, (laughs) which is is sort of like the negative control, right? (laughs) Just being present in the room with them. Um, And then we had casting a shadow over them, kind of simulating some kind of looming stimulus. Then we had making a sort of a, a tap or a vibration right next to them. So it's sort of more of a tactile stimulus that was right next to them, the visual stimulus that happened really close to them. And then we had a couple of more intense stimuli where we um, tapped, tapped them on the back with a pen to simulate, you know, a predator investigating them. And then finally one where we actually grabbed them with forceps and picked them up and dropped them similar to how a bird might kind of investigate at a more intense level. And what did you find? We found out that they don't mind what you do so long as you don't touch them. So it took for us to actually tap them or pick them up and drop them for them to perform their display. So this is really weird to me because why would you enact your biggest form of defence after you've already essentially been attacked? Why are you waiting so long? Yeah, that's right. So the classical kind of descriptions of dramatic behaviour describe prey that perform their defence as the predator approaches and then the predator stops and what was typically used, it was a butterfly, the butterfly would then fly away. So there was no opportunity for the, the display prevents the attack. But in this case, we saw that the display would only come after the tactile, you know, actual physical attack had taken place. And, yeah, we were just as perplexed as you described because that is not the way that people had classically described it. And so that's the great, those are the great moments in science, aren't they, where you go, hang on a minute, that's not what it's supposed to do, (laughs) and yet there it is in front of you doing it. Yeah, so it's weird. There's a couple of explanations for why they might be doing it that way. One is perhaps that they don't have the visual acuity to actually see a predator coming. It's unlikely, but it's possible. Um, Another is that it's a really bad strategy to reveal yourself unless you're sure you're under attack. Any eavesdropping predators around will see you, whereas they may not have otherwise. So you might want to wait until you've got a really, really reliable cue that you're under attack. And one way to facilitate that is by having tough wing casings that enable you to survive those initial investigations. The females do, right? So the females have given up flight and the females um, in katydids is called a tegmina, whereas in beetles it would be called elytra, but they're sort of modified wings that have been sort of hardened or toughened and they cover the abdomen. And in the females, they're very tough. Um, The males are not as tough. Their wings are not as tough, but there's a lot of them. And it's actually hard to get to the the abdomen um, without getting a mouthful of wings. So it's possible that the wings are acting as some kind of physical barrier that um, allow the katydids to survive initial attacks by predators and then perform their display 
which then deters the predator in theory. But there is something else. Something in the mountain katydids environment that has influenced the evolution of this particular, very unusual set of defensive strategies. It all comes back to those beautiful ravens and their avian neighbours. The reason we're talking about birds is because in the Alps, where we see high concentrations of mountain katydids, we see magpies and ravens and karawongs big birds that can easily eat large insects that are also pretty smart. Most birds like that are not so much like shoot and ask questions later kind of birds. Typically they're much more hesitant in the way that they approach prey. They walk up to it, they look at it, maybe poke it a little bit, see what happens. If you watch magpies or currawongs or things, they're actually a lot more um, hesitant than we might imagine predation events to be. I think we often think about predation events as just predators going in and nailing something and not thinking about it and and just everything's really fast and the predator's absolutely sure that this is what it should eat. But in fact, we actually don't see predators behaving that way all of the time. So that kind of enables the opportunity for defences to evolve that rely on this investigative behaviour of birds. And because the ravens proved too difficult to test, most of what we know about birds and katydids is actually with magpies. But in Australia, magpie, for example, walks up to a mountain katydid and if the katydid's moving, then it seems to give the magpie an indication that it should investigate further. You know, it's something alive, it's an insect, so it's probably within the realms of something they might eat. Typically, if it doesn't know what a mountain katydid is, It will walk up to it, it'll look at it, it'll tap it with its beak, the katydid might display, then the magpie will keep looking at it, then maybe tap it again, then maybe walk away, then maybe come back, and so on. And it has this like long investigative behaviour. And in most cases... Magpies that don't have any experience with mountain katydids will just kind of go, yeah, no, too weird. I don't know what's going on here. I'm out of here. But magpies that do know mountain katydids, so magpies that are found in the same areas, often much more confident with mountain katydids. So they might go up to them, pick them up and eat them straight away. Or they might tap them oh, yes, I know what you are, pick them up, maybe wipe their abdomen on the grass. Possibly we've seen some dunking some in water (laughs) Um, and then down the hatch. And in our experiments, we showed that actually 50% of interactions with magpies will result in the katydid being eaten if the magpie is living in the same area that you find katydids. Whereas it's something like 75 or 80% of the interactions between Naive magpies and mountain katydids will just result in the magpie walking away. So much more likely that a mountain katydid will survive an attack from a naive magpie than it will a magpie that knows it. So that's interesting, right? That the defence mechanisms work first with a flash of colour. Oh, scary, I won't eat that. But then later on, the magpie learns through trial and error, perhaps desperation, that the warning signals were a bit of a lie that they might taste a bit funny, but they're still very edible. There is no 
defense that works all the time, right? Your defense gives you some probability of surviving an encounter with a predator, but these mountain katydids are so big, they can be just too valuable of a meal to let pass. Even if they taste a bit weird, even if you get a bit of a toxic load from them, yeah, we should never, you should never assume that predators have like a, like a smallest board of, of whatever they want, whenever they want it. You know, life is tough in the wild. And if you come across a, a really big meal and you haven't eaten for a while, you know, it sometimes is a choice between your death, you know, from starvation or taking on a bit of a toxic load. So that, you know, sometimes predators are forced into those kinds of trade-offs when they're really desperate. And then I was just thinking it's sort of like me with Easter eggs that are well out of date. I just, sometimes you just can't resist. (laughs) Even though you know it's bad for you, you just know (laughs) that you've got to have it. Dr Kate Umbers is from the University of Western Sydney and we were talking about Mountain Katydids today. Go to the Off Track website to see a photo of a Katie did. And remember to meet me here at the same time next time. That's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.